0: This, uh, it's not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday, the following Wednesday, March 2nd, is Ash Wednesday. That is the, uh, the kind of the kickoff. Can you kick off Lent? I don't know how you do. It's the start of Lent. It's the beginning of the the six weeks period uh, when 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 disciples of Jesus prepare for the resurrection, and we we enter a time of reflection and confession and repentance and and uh, uh, kind of you know looking at our own lives and trying to figure out where we are and are we ready for the resurrection of Jesus and for everything that means for us. And I am so thrilled to announce to you that on Ash Wednesday, March second, this family of Christians here at GCR is going to partner with. First Presbyterian Church and we're going to have a joint Ash Wednesday service at their place on March 2nd at 6:30. and I I'm just excited about that yeah I'm, okay there yeah we can do that I'm excited about it and let me tell you why a couple of reasons here um Well, okay. Let me give you three reasons because I'm a preacher. Here's three points, real fast, okay? This is why I'm so excited about this. One is uh, the senior pastor over there at First Pres, a guy named Steve Shore. Some of y'all know him. I've just met him recently. Uh, We've talked on the phone a couple of times. I went to lunch with him maybe two or three weeks ago, and and uh, just just kind of we just kind of clicked, just became friends pretty fast. And then when we were talking as ministers, okay, do we want to do something for Ash Wednesday? Do we want to plan something for our church family? to maybe explore some Christian practice that's typically out of our uh, comfort range, you know, as good old Church of Christers. And uh, the more we talked about it, it became obvious that we wouldn't be able to pull it off that quickly. And so we just kind of decided, well, maybe there's another church in town that we could kind of crash there Ash Wednesday service, and let's just make a call and see what happens. I called Steve, and I'm telling you right now, it was thrilling to me to know that there is another pastor in this town and there is another church in this city that is as passionate about tearing down the walls between denominations and between Christians as we are. So I'm excited about that. Now, here's, here's the two follow-up points. Here's why we need to participate with our brothers and sisters at First Pres at their Ash Wednesday service. Two things. One of them is it will transform us. The Holy Spirit will work as we get out of our comfort zones, as we engage our brothers and sisters in Christ and do something not many of us have done. It'll be a learning experience. It'll be something new for most of us and it will change us. I promise you it will. The the third thing is, am I on point three? Is this number three? The third thing is, it will be an undeniable and powerful witness to this city that we serve a king of kings and we serve a prince of peace who is bigger than whatever we think might divide us. Can I get an amen on that? It will be important. And so we're going to talk more about this and the specifics of it and kind of explain it uh, this coming Wednesday during the GCR family update. So we'll be watching for that. But I'm telling you right now, get your Bible class, get your life group, get your family together, be in prayer about this. I'd like us to have more GCR people than they've got first prez people there wouldn't you love that so let's let's just plan on that together i am i am so excited about that and we'll talk more about that in the coming days so who do you look more like your mama or your daddy who do you look more like i want you to share that with somebody sitting on your pew with you right now just look at them and say i look more like my even if it makes you cringe okay even if you hate it I look, okay, I don't need an amen from my daughters down here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, yeah. Um, We've all got those things, right? We've got these things in us, we've got these things about us that we get from our parents. The nose, right? Uh, The eyes. Uh, Sometimes our mannerisms, you know, the way your eyebrow goes up, the way your mom's does, or maybe the way you get out of the recliner reminds people in your family of how your dad gets out of the recliner, right? Um, And so our kids are normally the ones who will point these out to us, you know. Now, sometimes you see them in the mirror. And sometimes you can actually feel like your mom or you can feel like your dad. You ever had that moment where you say something your mom always says or you do something the way your dad always does it and you're like, "Ooh, that was gross. I feel like my dad, you know? Usually in my experience, it's the kids who point that out because these three girls right here, once or twice a week, it feels like I'll do something or say something and I'm just as innocent as the day is long. I'm just minding my own business and one of them will look at me and go, Grandpa? Because I've done something that looks like my dad. I'll say something. And they're like, Grandpa. And it's not great, okay? It's not. But we've all got these things, right? We've got these things and we can't deny them. It's just kind of who we are and, and uh, it, it's kind of you know, whatever it is. It tells the world and it reminds ourselves of who we are and who we belong to and where we came from. We've all got it. But our Lord Jesus Christ, he's got it more than anybody. Our Lord Jesus is not just the spitting image of his father. Hebrews 1 says, he is God. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1 says, God was pleased to have all of his fullness Dwell in Jesus. Remember Jesus. He says it himself. I am in the Father and the Father's in me. The Father lives in me and he's doing his work through me. Jesus says I and the Father are one. And I don't do a thing and I don't say a thing unless the Father tells me first. Jesus said it. If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father, right? And we want to see Jesus. We want to see him. Those people in Jerusalem in John 12, remember, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We would too. Why? Why do you want to see Jesus? Because when you see Jesus, when you really see Jesus and who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it, you see God. You understand the kingdom of God. When you see Jesus... All the secrets of the universe, all the answers to our biggest questions, who God really is and what God is doing and where this whole thing is headed, all of that becomes clear in Jesus. And so the invitation today is, come and see Jesus save. So what does it really mean? When we say Jesus saves, Jesus saves And saving is really what Jesus is all about. Jesus came to save. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and he said, Mary's going to have a baby and you're going to name him Jesus. And Joseph said, well, no, we've kind of decided on Joseph Jr. And the angel said, no, 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 you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. Yeshua is the word in Hebrew. It means God saves. And so saving is Jesus' game and it's his name. Jesus says it in his own words that he came to seek and to save the lost. 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into this world to save. Acts chapter 4, Peter says there's no other name that anybody's ever been given through whom we can be saved. It's Jesus. Teachers teach, builders build, coaches coach, roofers roof, inspectors inspect, and the Savior saves. Amen. Amen. So come and see Jesus save. Okay? We will. What are we supposed to see? When Jesus saves, what is he telling us? What is he showing us about God? Is there anything about God, about God's character, about God's purposes, about what God wants, and how God operates? Is there anything about the kingdom of God that we're supposed to know when we see Jesus save? I think there is. So, so let's see. We're going to do this by answering three questions this morning. Okay. The first question is, who does Jesus save? Who does he save? The answer is everybody. Our Lord Jesus came here to save everybody. He's the savior of the world, right? That's what the people in John 4 in that little Samaritan village of Sychar, that's what they recognized. Jesus hung out with them for two days and they all declared at the end of those two days, we know this man is the savior of the world. Remember in John 4 at the beginning, it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. And we've talked about this, right? People like Jesus never had to go through Samaria. People like Jesus always went around Samaria. They moved everything, heaven and earth, to avoid Samaria. So why did Jesus have to go to Samaria? Because Jesus saves. And at the end of those two days, yeah, The Savior of the world. That's what the Apostle John wrote in his letter 40, 45 years later. He says, we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The whole world? Everybody? That's hard for us though, isn't it? This is hard for us. I want you to think about a person right now that if you were Jesus, you might not save. Now, don't look at anybody. Don't make eye contact with anybody. That'd be really awkward right now. Think about a person or think about a group of people who, if you were Jesus, you might not save them. Are you thinking about them? Think about them. That's why you're not Jesus. That's one of the reasons, but that's why you're not Jesus. Jesus. Jesus came to save everybody, even the people you don't think deserve to be saved, just like people like Zacchaeus. Okay, turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here. You know this story Zacchaeus is a tax collector for the empire, he's an enemy of the state. His work funds the the awful, evil activities of the occupying forces. And when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house, the Bible says in verse 7, all the people complained about it. They muttered, it says, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. William Willimon, who is one of my all-time favorite preachers and authors. In fact, I'll just recommend to you right now, anything William Willimon ever writes, you read it, it'll be great. If you come across a shopping list that Willimon wrote, read it and memorize it. It'll change your life, I promise. So Willimon is, is, is uh, writing about this Zykeia story in one of his books, and he puts this in the margin. He calls this an aside to Jesus. Like, a, by the way, While I'm writing this story about Zacchaeus, I want to tell you something, Jesus. And here's what he says. I'm not that all surprised that you would love me and my friends and even dare to die for us. What surprises me is that you would love my neighbor. Yes, the one who plays rap music, keeps a pit bull, and possesses Neanderthal political opinions. That one. I'm surprised you love him and save him as much as you love and save me. Listen, church, our Lord Jesus did not come to this earth. He did not leave his home in glory and cross the barriers of time and space just to pick a few over here and choose a few more over there. Our Lord came for a massive harvest. He wants the hall to be huge. Think about his stories that he told because he wants us to see this, right? He says a farmer goes forth to sow seed and then he just shows us this farmer just slinging seed everywhere, just indiscriminately. The seed is landing all over the place and he doesn't care. Why? Because he wants a massive harvest. He says the kingdom of God is like this giant net and you lower it into the lake and when it comes up, there's all kinds of different fish, lots of different fish. That's what, what the uh, passage in John 3 is telling us. We read this earlier. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We don't read verse 17 as often as we should. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The world. The world. That is bigger than us. Remember Mark chapter 9? The disciples come up to Jesus and they're feeling real good about themselves. They say, hey, we saw this guy. He was tossing out demons in your name. And we told him to stop. We told him to stop because he's not one of us. And Jesus said, whoa, don't ever do that again. (laughs) Don't ever tell them to stop. Just because they're not with you doesn't mean they're not with me. That's what Jesus said. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I've got other sheep. I've got other sheep, and they're in different pens. And those pens may have a different name on the fence. And those sheep might bleat with an accent. They might be Presbyterians. Preacher. Right? But they're my sheep, is what Jesus said, and I'm bringing them along too. So get used to it. it, is what Jesus says. In John 12, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Everybody. So to all the outcasts, to all the marginalized, to all the people who don't fit in, to all the people who've heard no, all their lives from everybody, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is God's giant yes. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter sees it. Remember Peter? Everybody, he says, Everybody in the world who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Praise God. So who does Jesus save? Everybody. And that tells us something about God. God through Christ is saving people right now today in Midland, Texas who are not even on your radar. And that ought to shape the way we treat people all people so how does jesus save that's the second question how does jesus save and if you were looking for an adjective i'm not sure you can find just one word how does jesus save generously extravagantly lavishly uh over the top that's three words but it's hyphenated maybe Relentlessly, we've sung recklessly this morning. Recklessly, that's how Jesus saves. He saves recklessly. If you'll flip back just a couple of uh, uh, pages maybe to Luke chapter 15. Jesus starts out these very familiar stories by saying, suppose one of you, you know these stories. He starts them and he says, which ones of you? Right? And then he describes this guy who loses one sheep out of a hundred. And he leaves the 99 out in the middle of the desert exposed to, to who knows what kind of danger and peril. And then he beats the bushes all day long. He's climbing over rocks. He's crawling underneath acacias. He's in the searing heat all afternoon looking for this one single lamb. And Jesus says, which of you? And we say, well, well yeah, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. I, yeah, that, that's what a good shepherd would do. Obviously, I, I've been in that situation before. This, this story I can relate to. Thank you, Jesus. That, that makes sense. And then Jesus describes a woman who loses one coin out of ten, and she is desperately looking for it. She looks everywhere. She, she rips up the carpet in her house, and she pulls all the cushions off the couch, and she is cleaning up the junk drawers and all the closets. She's plunging the toilet. I mean, this lady, she is turning over everything in her house, trying to find this one single coin, and Jesus says, which of you? And we say, well, yeah, I I, I would do that. I've been in that situation before. That's how I would respond. That's that's how I would act. And so I I, I get it. I understand why you're telling the story. Thank you, Jesus. that's, That's helpful. And then Jesus talks about this father who has a son who steals half his fortune. And this son runs away from home and he spends the family's money on drugs and alcohol and sex. And he winds up on the state's most wanted list. And at the end of the story, he's broke and he's gross. And he limps back home after all this time, after blowing the family's money, after ruining the family's good name. He crawls back home and his dad, his dad throws him a party. He restores the son right there on the spot to his previous position in the family. No questions asked. The dad doesn't even blink. And Jesus says, which of you? Suppose one of you. And I think we've always answered Jesus' questions by saying, well, yeah, all of us. Yeah, anybody with a heart. I mean, yeah, that, that's how a good dad would be. This, this makes perfect sense to me. Anybody, anybody would go to these measures to find what is lost. Really? Really? Seriously? Speaking just for myself, I think I would probably keep my eye on those 99 sheep and write off that lost one on my tax return as a loss. That's what I would do. And there's no way in the world I would look all day long for one single lost coin. I would not get on my hands and knees for more than maybe a minute and a half at the most for one coin. And this son, seriously... What would you do? Unlike the father in the story, I'd make this kid at least finish his apology speech. You know what I mean? I'd make this kid at least do something to earn the robe and the ring. He would have to get a job first. He'd have to, to clean himself up. He'd have to check into some rehab. He'd have to get some counseling. He'd have to get things figured out first, right? It'd be six months before I'd even think about giving him a cell phone after this deal. You know what I'm talking about? You've got to earn the trust back. There are consequences to your choices. Everybody's got to pay. When Jesus tells us these stories and he says, which of you? I think the really honest answer is none of us. Nobody. None of us would really do these things. It's too unseemly. It's too reckless. It's, it's too over the top. It's not responsible. And it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I think that's the point. These stories are not about us, church. These stories are about God. God. Jesus is not saying, yes, God's love and commitment is just like ours. Jesus is saying, God's love and devotion and determination to save the lost is like nothing you've ever seen or experienced in your life. You can't relate. You can't understand there's no way you can adequately comprehend the love and the patience and the grace and the devotion of God as he secures our salvation. It's too audacious. It's too crazy. It's too reckless for us. Jesus saves. That means God will stop at nothing. Nothing's going to change his mind. Nothing's going to slow him down. Jesus will do whatever it takes for as long as it takes, as long as it takes him deep into the heart and soul of anybody who's lost. You look at Jesus as he saves. And what we see is the son of God, way too busy looking and saving to be worried about judging and condemning. He's too worried about finding the lost. He's not worried about deciding who's good and who's bad and who might be worthy and who won't be. All he's worried about is looking and saving. Even when it doesn't make sense. Maybe especially. When it doesn't make sense. Go back to Zacchaeus. In uh, chapter 19. I mean Jesus is just passing through Jericho, right? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's got a fairly significant appointment. That he's trying to keep. And notice... Zacchaeus doesn't invite Jesus over for dinner. Jesus invites himself. Now, our Lord is not one to turn down a free meal at the wrong place. He does that all the time. But Jesus here invites himself. Listen, that's our Lord. He's always intruding. He's always pushing in. He's always right in your face when you least expect it and sometimes when you least want it. But he's always there. Verse 5, he says, I must stay at your house today. Why? I think we've already answered this question. I must stay at your house today. Jesus, why? There's restaurants in Jericho. There's there's hotels. Jericho's a big city. You've got friends. Why must Jesus stay at Zacchaeus' house? Because Jesus saves That's the answer. Jesus saves. And around the table that night with Zacchaeus and all of his friends, our Lord Jesus proclaims, today salvation has come to this house. So, according to Scripture, this is the definition of salvation. You ready? When Jesus Christ pushes into your space and he makes your sinful table the site of his holy feast... That is salvation, and it has come to Zacchaeus. That is salvation, and that is Jesus' priority. That's his goal, and by the way, this is his initiative. It's his choice. It's his call, and he will stop at nothing to see it through. Church, that's the kingdom of God. What a deal, right? What a deal. The only claim to membership is that you got to be lost, The only way you can be a citizen is that somebody else finds you. That's it. What a deal. Jesus saves. And here's the last question. Why does Jesus save? Why does he do it? For relationship. That's the answer. All of salvation is about relationship between God and the men and women he created and loves so much. Last Sunday, we talked about the healings of Jesus. And we looked at uh, Luke chapter 7. Where Jesus is talking to these disciples of John the Baptist. And he says, you go back and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. By the way, notice Jesus puts preaching in the same category as healing the blind and raising the dead. Did you pick up on that? I always notice that. (laughs) But let me remind you. We know this, but but we need to hear this again. A person with leprosy was not allowed to go into the temple of God. If you were blind, if you were deaf, if you were lame, if you were bleeding, if you had a skin disease, you could not enter the temple. You could not come into the presence of God. You could not worship God with God's holy people. To those who are afflicted with these kinds of imperfections, the very presence of God is off limits. But then Jesus saves. And when Jesus saves, when Jesus heals, when Jesus pushes into your situation, he's not just restoring the sight to the blind. He's not just causing the crippled to walk. Jesus is making it so these people can get past the bouncers at the temple doors. He's making it possible to approach God, to be close to God, to be in the same room with the presence of God. Jesus saves. He saves so you can be in a relationship with God. These people were unable to come to God and so God in Christ came to them. And you, with all your brokenness, you, with all your sin, With everything that's wrong with you, you're unable to come into the presence of God. You can't. And so God in Christ has come to you. Praise God. That's why God comes to us. Through Jesus. For relationship. And so when our Lord Jesus died on the cross... When he took your sins into his death, when the price was paid in full, when your debt was completely erased, when the power that sin has over you was broken forever at the death of Jesus Christ, the gospel says that big veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Everything that stands between you and a righteous, holy, close, intimate, personal relationship with God was forever done away with. And you and God can now in Christ be tight. You're in. That's what God always promised, right? I will live with you. That's the covenant. We're always trying to figure out where's the covenant. Here's the old covenant. Here's the new covenant. Where's the covenant? There's only one covenant. There's only one promise that God made to us. And he did it from Abraham all the way through Revelation. And he does it from the prophets. He does it through the apostles. He does it uh, in Revelation when we have that that big picture of that final last day. There's one promise God has consistently almost 30 times in Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. This is what he says. And in 2 Corinthians 6, I'll just read that one. He says, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the covenant. That's the promise. That close, daily, personal relationship with God. That's the ultimate goal. That's what God wants. That's the why of everything that God is doing in and through Jesus. So let's go back to Zacchaeus as we wrap up. One more time. Let's look at this. Jesus is in Zacchaeus' house, Luke 19. He's sitting at Zacchaeus' table. He's eating and drinking with Zacchaeus. And he says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too, this guy you don't think is, he is a son of Abraham. Verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. And you can almost hear Zacchaeus. Wait a second. I'm not lost. You calling me lost? I don't think I'm lost. I mean, I'll admit I haven't always been above board in my business dealings. I'll admit sometimes I get a little carried away in my allegiance to the government. I know, I know. But I'm not lost. Do I look lost, Jesus? I mean, look at this fancy china. Look at these exquisite drapes. I mean, I'm in a 5,000 square foot house with four bathrooms and nine TVs. Do I look lost to you? Listen, if you do not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you are not walking and talking with the Lord, if you are not eating and drinking with the Lord, if you are not with, God, you're lost. That's why Jesus came to save everybody. It's why he saves so recklessly to reconcile your relationship with God. In John 12, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, and he's talking about his death on the cross, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people. To myself, You read the letters of the Apostle Paul later on in the New Testament. Paul's not amazed by how few people are being saved. He's blown out of the water how many people are being saved over and over again. It stuns him. And so what we see in Jesus and what this shows us about God is this relentless reach. Hear me, please. You cannot fall too far. You cannot sin Too much. You cannot be so lost that God through Jesus Christ cannot save you. And he so wants to. He alone has the power and the authority. He's the only one, church. He's the only one. And he can pick you up and carry you. He'll walk with you. But he can also pick you up and carry you right into the presence of God right now, today, and forever. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not saved by the blood of Jesus, if you haven't said yes to the Lord, if you haven't given yourself to him, in total trust. God, I can't do it. Only you can. I belong to you in Jesus. If you've not done that, let me just speak to you right now for about 60 seconds, okay? Let me tell you. If, you've, if, if you're not saved, let me tell you. Um, salvation is not my business. It's not the church's business. It's God's business. Salvation. Know that. But at the same time, You talk to most Christians, most Christians will tell you if God can save me, if God can find a way to me, if God can turn things around for me and bring me home, if he can make me whole and heal me, most Christians will tell you God can save just about anybody, Stand with me, church. I'd like to ask our, uh, our elders and their wives and uh, our ministers and their spouses, would y'all just, would y'all step into the aisles? And I need some in the back, some in the front. Would y'all just look really friendly and warm and inviting? And if you need somebody to just pat you on the back this morning, if you need somebody to pray with you, if you need somebody to assure you and tell you that you are saved, by God in Jesus Christ. If you need somebody to do that for you, if you just need somebody to pray for you this morning, just to pray with you, we want to we give you that time. We want to make that available for you, okay? And if you're not saved, if you have not given your life to God through baptism in Jesus Christ, please talk to me this morning. Grab Barry, grab, there's several elders here. Grab April, grab somebody. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about giving your life to God through baptism into Jesus Christ because Jesus saves. And again, here's the last thing. Salvation is not about you finding something or you discovering something or you learning something or you doing a crying thing. Salvation is about being lost and then being found. God. Let's sing together, church, and let's pray.